One was a pilot, one was a linguist, the other three had been trained in different areas of mission work. And in September of 1955, they were in Ecuador. The pilot that day in September was flying over a remote part of the jungle and he noticed a fire, swooped down a little bit lower and noticed a little tribe of people living near a beach in the middle of the jungle in Ecuador. They began a campaign at that point to try and reach this people group who had never seen a white man before, who had never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over the course of the next few months, they came by on a regular basis and flew low over the beach so the people could get used to seeing the airplane. Eventually, they started dropping care packages onto the beach of food and other things that the Indians might enjoy having. After months of doing this and trying to win their favor without ever making contact, the weather was right one day, and they finally decided that they would go. And on January 3rd, 1956, they landed their small plane on the beach out uh, nearby this tribe, and they made contact with the Alka Indians. Five days later, on January 8th, something went terribly wrong. And Roger and Pete and Ed and Jim and Nate, these guys who had given their lives, given their, the best part of their adult lives at this point to serving God, died at the end of the spear from the Indians that they sought to just bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story made worldwide headlines. It was the cover of Life magazine. It was uh, a several-week uh, commitment by Reader's Digest to tell their story. It was on, in virtually every newspaper across the country and many places across the world. Two movies had been made about their story. These guys, in the midst of just trying to serve God and to bring the good news of Jesus Christ, gave their lives on the beach that day. And it kind of brings to mind the question of, of why is it when people are serving God, when they're doing their best, when they're using the gifts that God has given them, when they're doing all that they know to do in a cause that is incredibly noble and has uh, impact for all eternity, why do things like this happen? Well, we really shouldn't be overly surprised because six times in the New Testament, Jesus comments that when we step out to serve him, we will be persecuted. That bad things will happen when we take that step. Today's message is called Pressing Through because we're going to see how the people in the book of Nehemiah have to press through a, a terrible time is they're trying to serve God and trying to do what is right. 1 John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Jesus says, Don't be surprised when the world hates you. They hated me first. Don't be surprised when you seek to do something for God and you meet with, with some opposition. That's how it's supposed to go. I have a friend who is a missionary. He served in a couple of terrible uh, fields. If you are 
uh, not good with language, and John wasn't. He learned Japanese first and served in Japan, and Japanese is one of the hardest languages to master. Served there for about 15 years, and he was so successful there that in only, you know, great hierarchies can do, they moved him then to Mongolia, so he had to learn a whole new language, completely dissimilar to Japanese. But John was home on furlough for almost a year uh, when we were serving in Chicago, and I got to know John, and we had breakfast together about once a week, and every time I saw John for that year, he said the same thing to me. He'd come up, he'd say, hey, Bear, how you doing? How's the world treating you? And I'd bite every time, and I'd say, you know, pretty good. And he'd say, that's too bad, because if you were doing it right, the world would hate you. Now, you kind of have to be a missionary to get away with that kind of thing, I think, but, but it's, it's a truism from Scripture. That if we are truly seeking to serve God, there will be times that the world hates us for what we are doing. That opposition will arise when we're seeking to do the right thing. Um, Chip Ingram, who is a a pastor here, uh, has written a great book called Holy Ambition. And it's about this struggle of Nehemiah. And in that book he says this, Whenever we choose to champion God's agenda, we're we're invading enemy territory. And Satan doesn't go down easily. We often get disillusioned as humans, and our first thought tends to be, what did I do wrong? Well, the truth is, we didn't do anything wrong. In fact, if we go through the Old and the New Testament, what we'll find is that almost every time a man or woman takes a specific step towards holy ambition, conditions get a lot worse before they get better. When we as people or families or as a church or as a group of families, as a life group or whatever, take steps to make a real difference for God, there's a timeless axiom that we can expect to experience. Our greatest personal victories are almost always followed by periods of intense opposition. And that's where we pick up the story in Nehemiah today. It was 444 B.C. Nehemiah and the Israelites have set out to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem, which was destroyed about 140 years earlier. I'm going to pick up a couple weeks back here in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Read along with me, if you will, if you have your Bible. Nehemiah 2, 17 through 20, or it should be on the screen behind us. says this, and this is Nehemiah speaking. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer uh, suffer derision. (coughs) Excuse me. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, rise up, uh, let us rise up and build. And so we strengthened our hands for the good works. And this is not just some kind of building project. In my life and ministry, I've had a lot of opportunities to uh, do building projects, several here at this church, some on, uh, you know, mission field type stuff. Neil, who we all talked about earlier, we spent a few days together in, a few weeks together, I guess, in uh, Honduras, digging holes and pouring concrete and all kinds of things together. They're great life-building experiences, um, especially when we don't have many skills, so it has to be a life-building experience because the job's not that great when we're all said and done. And that sounds an awful lot like the book of Nehemiah, by the way. 
But Nehemiah encounters these people, and he drops a couple names. He says, remember, guys, we're doing this for God, and oh, by the way, the king is on our side too, and he's actually helping to fund this thing. So Nehemiah's a little bit of a name dropper, but when he gets the people together, they get excited, they get busy, and they have a project before them. And when that happens, they're going to meet opposition. So in verse 19, it says, "Then when Sanballat, uh, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Amorite, Ammonite, uh, servant of Geshem, the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and they despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? You are rebelling against the king. Now, Nehemiah understands where the power for this project is going to come from. And so he answers these guys when they come to him and they say, you're, you're doing something wrong here. You know, the king doesn't want this wall rebuilt. Well, actually he does, but they don't know that. But Look at Nehemiah's response. It says, And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah doesn't say, you know, I got this great group of guys that are coming. I have hired the best contractors in all of the land to come and do this. That's not what he says. He says, The God of heaven will make us prosper. See, Nehemiah knows what he is up against, and he knows that this battle is not just a battle to rebuild this wall, to get this pile of rubble that used to be the wall around Jerusalem and to rebuild it again. He knows that there's more to this than carpentry and stonemasonry. He knows that this is a battle between the powers of the people that are trying to rebuild the city of God and those who will be in opposition to that. So Skeet talked last week about chapter 3, and I'm not even going to attempt to go through all the names and crazy things that he did last week. I am very proud of you for taking that challenge on, by the way. If anyone was here last week, that was incredible in my mind. But in chapter 3, we find out that they start to rebuild this wall, and they give this great, he gives this great list of the people that are there to rebuild the wall. Now, the wall of Jerusalem had ten sections to it, and dividing those sections were ten gates. So as they're rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, these ten sections of wall, that they're taking what used to be the wall that's lying in rubble where it has been knocked down, and they're restacking the stones, and where they're getting provisions from the king to to put up new gates and new hinges and all those things. Listen to the workforce that it lists in chapter 3. I find this particularly amusing myself. you got the high priest. You have a governor. You have three goldsmiths one perfumer, which Skeet happened to draw out last week. That's the guy's gate. You don't want to be behind the perfumer. You have eight district rulers. You have two priests. You have a group of temple servants. You have a group of merchants. And then this one's my favorite of the bunch. You have a gatekeeper who's living in Jerusalem. It's been 140 years since there has been a gate anywhere on the city, around the city of Jerusalem. But for some reason, there's a gatekeeper there. I'm thinking, being from Chicago as I am, that it's some kind of union job. (laughs) And that as long as there has been a gate at one point in time, we need to have a gatekeeper. And this guy has been on the king's payroll, as has his father and all these generations back for 140 years. And finally, he's the first one that's actually going to do something. Now, that makes it not a union job if he's actually going to... No, that's not right. But they all come with this attitude that says, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work, not just for the work, 
but for the good work. So we pick up now in chapter 4. They're going to rebuild the wall. That's where they're at. They've gathered this bunch. Not a carpenter, not a stonemason, not a laborer, nobody with a wheelbarrow, nothing. They've gathered this group of people together, and now we're going to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So in verse 1, we pick up again of chapter 4. Now Sanballat heard that they were beginning to build the wall, and he was angry, and he was greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Um, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. So we got these two guys that are in opposition. They're leaders of these, these bands of people that are in opposition. And the first one says he has missed the point the first time that Nehemiah has spoken to him. And, and he says, what are these Jews doing? What are they going to restore for themselves? The point is that Nehemiah and the other people that are there to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem are not doing this for themselves. The point is that they are doing this in service to God to restore God's city to surround the temple for the Jews to come and worship. So this is not just some building project to claim a piece of land. This is service to God. And the enemies of this project have missed that point. That Nehemiah and these people are here not just to put up a nice wall, but to serve God in the process. And because of that, they have a power on their side that is different than anything that these other rulers have ever seen. But the rulers do look around, these two guys, and they do see the crowd that Nehemiah has gathered around them. The perfumer and the union guy and the governors. And there's one group where the noblemen won't bend over to pick up anything, if you recall, if you were here last week. So he looked, they look at these guys and they say, you know what? This is quite a bunch that they got here. And so this guy, Tobiah, whoever he is, says, you know, I got this feeling once they get started, if a fox jumps up on the wall, foxes are known for being a little light on their feet, small, light animals, big fuzzy tails, right? If a fox even jumps up on it, it's going to knock down the wall. I don't think we really need to worry too much about this. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, is the quote from Nehemiah. You know, as I look at this, <coughs> this is not an uncommon uh, story in Scripture. As we look at this, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, beginning at verse 10, it says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the presence of, of this darkness, this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may, able to be with, you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. See, God tells us in his word that when we do step out, that when we do say we are going to serve God on a mission field, in children's church, teaching Sunday school, doing whatever you do here in the church, you should expect opposition. It says in Ephesians, it's going to come. 
So don't be prepared if it comes. It says be prepared so that you may stand when it comes. Opposition comes when we stand up to do something for God. But it doesn't stop there. And I think that's pretty cool. Verse 14 says, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and his shoes on uh, for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. See, he gives this list of weapons, and I think it's a pretty cool list of weapons that we have, but each of those weapons is for a specific purpose. We have the shield to extinguish the fiery darts. We have the sword. We have all these things. But then he wraps it up and he says, along with each one of those weapons that has a purpose, don't forget, it's prayer that's going to make a difference. It's prayer that is going to be the difference maker in this. No matter what weapon you're wielding, don't wield it by itself. But instead, always be praying. Pray continuously. The greatest weapon, I think, that we have to the opposition that comes at us when we choose to serve God in whatever capacity that is, whether it's as a father leading his family, whether it's as a wife who is being submissive to her husband, whether it's kids who are trying to obey their parents, whether it's serving someplace in the church or on the mission field, whatever it is, I think the greatest weapon that we have is prayer. And, you know, we're going to find opposition, guys. It happens not just in the day of Nehemiah. It happens not just in the New Testament. It happens today, too. When I was... uh, Serving a different church for six years running, I took a group of young people and, and some adults too, because you can't just take 80 young people anywhere without a few adults to watch them. And we went for six years running to the Yankton Sioux Indian tribe in Marty, South Dakota. And we worked on this reservation in Marty, South Dakota for two weeks at a time. And we did all kinds of things. We built basketball courts. We built uh, playground equipment for the kids in the housing areas. We did all, all manner of things. We helped with another university that was in the area to set up a, a program so the kids, that these Indian kids that got out of the high school could go and get an associate's degree and then have a job when they were done with that in the IT industry. All kinds of things that we got to do. It was a great ministry. For six years we did that. It was phenomenal. Hundreds of kids went with us and, and got to, to serve God in this, in this respect. Got to know kids. We, we got a chance to present the gospel to the people that we were with. It was phenomenal. But all along the way there was opposition. The second year we went, the first year we went, I took eight kids and two adults with me. Because it was sort of testing it out, see what we got into. The second year we took 60 kids with us. So we went from 8 to 60 in just one year. The second year we were there, we were going to be there for 12 days with a day of travel on either end of the trip. So we were gone for a total of two weeks, for those of you who are doing math. We get there, and I, and I meet with the, the tribal leaders on the first day, and, and we're, we're all set. And we get to it. But the day before we're going to leave, I'm saying my goodbyes to my family because we're going to leave early in the morning the next day. At this point, my son Sam, who is now about this big, was about this big. He's about four years old. 
And I scoop them up in my arms as I'm putting them in bed that night. And I've been telling them about what I'm going to do for these two weeks that we're going to be gone. I'm going to tell them we're going to go. And there's all these, these little Indian kids that have nothing on this reservation. And we're going to build some playground equipment for them. And we're going, to, we're going to play with them. And we're going to teach them about Jesus. And we're going to teach them songs. We're going to do some craft things with them. All kinds of stuff. And I scoop them up in my arms. I'm taking them to bed. And I lay them down in bed. And he hugs me real big. And he says to me, Dad, tell me again why it is that you have to leave for two weeks to go play with some other kids instead of staying here and playing with me. And I mean to tell you, I don't know about anybody else, but for me, that got a hold of me like nothing else. That was the greatest opposition that could come in my life. When he says, how could you leave me to go with some other kids? You know, and his, what, what I heard from that is, do you love them more than you love me? You know, why is it in all this? And I get there, and where it's the first day, and I met with the tribal leaders, and I go back, and we're ready to start in the next day. And, and I meet with my group of guys that are leaders on the trip, and I look at them and I say, I can't do this. I'm haunted by the vision of this little red-haired boy looking at me and saying, how could you go and spend time with these kids instead of staying here with me? And I'm just, you know, I'm breaking down, I'm in tears, you know, there's all these, all these plans have been made and all this stuff. And one of the guys looks at me and says, you go right now, go back home. Go right back home right now. Take care of your family. God is not calling you away from your family for these folks. We'll take care of it all. My older brother who was with on this trip then looks at me and says, no, you don't. You stay right here, and the three of us guys that are here are going to commit to you every day to get up a half an hour earlier in the morning. We're going to meet right here. You have to have coffee ready, but we're going to meet right here, and we are going to pray for you every single morning Every day. And the last thing that we do before we're going to go to bed at night is we're going to pray that God doesn't cause any problem, or that God doesn't allow any problems into this, and these little haunting things and whatever else is going to come along this week doesn't present a problem. Long story short, we stayed. I stayed. Every morning, John and Jim and Dave all prayed for me, and we prayed for each other. Day two of the trip... We're unloading truckloads of lumber because we're going to build all kinds of playground equipment there. And in unloading lumber, I'm carrying with the two guys at the other end, and I two little scrawny high school kids at the other end, and me at one end of this big pile of lumber. We're carrying it. I step off of one pile of lumber. I twist my ankle. I break my ankle. Now we're on an Indian reservation. I'm not going to the doctor because I don't need to put a monkey foot around my neck and have them rub a little mud on me because that's what I was going to get there at the Indian Health Clinic. So for the next 12 days, I hobbled around on a broken ankle. The best thing was, at night when we gathered together in the cafeteria of the Indian school, the, it had a tile floor, and it was about 40 degrees, and i take my shoes off, and it just felt so good. But about day three, one of the moms who was with us on the trip comes up to me and says, you don't look so good, and your ankle is like this big and purple. What are you going to do? She said, I think you ought to go home. And then one of the other moms came up and says, no, he's not going home. We're going to pray for him. This is all unsolicited stuff. We're going to pray for him. And so every day at noontime, because I was always get, already getting prayer from the guys at the front and the back end of every day, 
every day, D. Ray and Ruth Clint at noontime would find me wherever we were on the reservation and they'd pray with me. We got through that whole thing. We went back for, six, for four more years after that to that same group of people. And I found out on that trip exactly how important prayer is. Not for physical well-being, not for my emotional state, but it is the thing that combats the persecution, the abuse, the stuff that comes in from the outside or even sometimes from the inside when we choose to follow God and do what he wants us to do. That's exactly what Nehemiah does. These guys are coming at him. In the first passage we read, they were a little dismayed that, they were gonna, that these guys were going to rebuild the wall. In the second passage, it says that these two rulers from the outside have now gotten angry and enraged. So Nehemiah prays. And he gets after it when he prays. This is not just some little mamby-pamby, God help me in whatever is coming my way today. He prays in verse 4. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of these builders. You got that? He looks, first of all, he looks at this ragtag bunch of guys and he calls them builders. And then secondly, he looks at the opposition. He says, it's not that they're against us, God. They provoked you. So God, guess what? You take care of it. It's a great attitude. It's the attitude that we ought to have more often. Then when we meet opposition, it's not opposition to us. It's opposition to God and what God wants to do. So he goes on. In verse 6 of chapter 4. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had then a mind to work. Remember the axiom that the greatest personal, uh, our greatest personal victories are always followed by periods of intense opposition? First they make the plan, they get opposition. They start building the wall, the opposition gets a little stronger. They go from despised to angered, and then it goes to actual plotting by their enemies as to what is going to happen. So when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were now very angry. You see the progression? The more God is doing through this ragtag bunch of builders, the greater the opposition is becoming. And they plotted together to come and to fight against Israel and to cause confusion in Jerusalem. It's the pattern that the Israelites have seen before, though. Because if you remember, a little while before this in their history, they have been slaves in the land of Egypt. And if you remember the story there, I know a lot of you, I talk about, you know, the Exodus and immediately you get a picture of Yule Brenner and Charlton Heston, right? And that's okay, that's good, if you have that picture from the movie The Ten Commandments. But if you, if you read the biblical account, you find out that when Moses goes before the Pharaoh, that's exactly what happens with the Pharaoh. When Moses first shows up before the Pharaoh and says, you need to let my people go so we can go out into the wilderness for three days and worship, the Pharaoh kind of laughs it off. And says, yeah, right, I'm going to let the slaves go? Yeah, right, good thinking. And then the plagues begin. And as each plague hits, Pharaoh gets a little more discouraged 
dismayed, angry, and all this other stuff. You know, after, after Moses comes the first time, the Pharaoh says, I'll teach these guys a lesson, and we'll just have them make bricks without straw. And then the persecution continues on the Jews, worse and worse, and Pharaoh gets angrier and angrier the more the plagues come. My favorite part about the story about the plagues on Egypt, there's ten plagues that hit Egypt. The first three hit everybody. After that, the plagues just hit the Egyptians, which has to really tick off the Egyptian people. You know, you're walking along, and you got boils all over you, and the, the Jew comes walking by. The Jewish slave guy says, Hi, Boily, how you doing? You know, And, and you, he doesn't have them because he's Jewish, you're Egyptian, so you got them. It's dark in the country. And the only place it's dark is over the Egyptians. So you got this bunch of Jews over here having a nice picnic outside with the bright sunshine, and ten feet away you got these, these Egyptians, they're in the pitch black. God is making a point. And that's what Moses takes to the Pharaoh. Says, you're not picking on me, Pharaoh. You're challenging Almighty God in all this thing. And that's why the plagues keep getting stronger and stronger. And when God speaks to Moses in that time, he says this, I am the Lord, God Almighty. I will deliver. I will redeem. I am the Lord. That's God's message to Moses. Moses, you don't need to worry about this whole thing. I'm in charge here. The Pharaoh's not talking to you. He's talking to me. So just don't worry about him in this whole thing. The other interesting thing about that story is that as the plagues come, and as the Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, as God hardens the Pharaoh's heart, Moses goes back and they pray. And they pray and say, what's next, God? So this is the pattern. We start doing things for God, we meet opposition. The more we do, the more opposition we meet, and the thing that we need to do is to pray. But, not just pray, we need to keep going, too, with what we're doing. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 9 says, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them, them being the enemies, day and night. So they're not just saying, Oh God, you know, when you drive these people away, we'll get back to the work on the wall. That's not what, they say, what he says. It says they prayed and they kept going and they took precautions. They set a guard to watch over the wall. Pressing through isn't easy. Nobody likes opposition. And too many people don't have the long view that says, this is God's plan and he's going to make it prosper. And if it doesn't, it's not my fault. God chose not to make it prosper. Praying in times of trouble seldom leads to our desire or outcome, mostly because God has a different perspective than we do as humans. And that's a pretty good thing because we're pretty small compared to God. So we want that godly perspective, and that's what we want to see happen. So oftentimes, we also find that people closest to us may not always be our biggest supporters. And it may be because they care for us so much, they don't want to see us opposed in anything. And so they say, you know, just walk away from it. If God wants it done, he'll do it, kind of thing. But that's not what happens here with Nehemiah. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. 
Yeah, they got that right. By themselves, they're not going to be able to rebuild the wall. They started to doubt themselves. Verse 11. And our enemies said, we will, uh, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So the enemy attack now has gotten beyond plotting. They're actually, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go in among them and we're going to kill them. We're going to stop their work. We're going to do whatever it takes to do that. Verse 12. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said, uh, and said to us ten times, you must return to us. The people around who aren't there as part of the work are looking at these guys and they're saying, this is getting dangerous, guys. The wall thing was a good idea, but you may want to pull back and let's rethink this whole thing. But that's not what Nehemiah is going to do. That's not what happens. These people, I think, probably had you know some good thought in their mind, but their, their thinking was wrong. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong, okay? But sometimes we need a little encouragement. And that's what God does for Nehemiah at this time. The people in the surrounding area are coming to these Jews that are rebuilding the wall, and they're saying, you guys probably need to just cut this out, step away from it for a little while, let things quiet down, and then maybe we'll get back to the wall building. But some of the families of these guys that are building the wall have just the opposite. And they come, and they come to help out. And that's what we see so many times, I've seen so many times in ministry, that when people step up and step out and say, I'm going to serve God and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability with the skills and abilities that he has given me, other people come beside, are encouraged by that, and join in the fight. It happens all the time. And that's why I would say that's another good reason why you should take time to serve in a local church, because when you do, somebody else is going to come beside you as well. Verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. He says, we got to keep going, guys. Yeah, we got to pray. Yeah, we got to be cautious. Yeah, we have to protect ourselves, but we got to keep going. So we're going to fight if we need to fight, but we're going to keep on building this wall. I told you about those five guys at the beginning who were just on that beach for five days trying to share the gospel with these, people, with these Indians. After they were killed, Jim Elliott's wife, went back. Nate Saint's son and niece went back to those same people. And in one of the greatest stories of redemption and of love and of grace and of mercy, the Alka Indians who killed these five guys are now, for the most part, Christians. There's a couple of them that were on the beach with spears in their hands that took the lives of those guys today that tour around the world with the offspring and the spouses of these guys that were murdered on the beach that day and talk about how God changed their lives. None of us will probably ever meet with that kind of opposition. 
But we can't be discouraged when we're doing what God calls us to do. Whether it's something simple like kids obey your parents, whether it's being the fathers and husbands and wives and moms that God calls us to be, whether it's serving in our church, whether it's going on a short-term mission trip, no matter what it is that we choose to do where our goal is to serve God, we're going to meet opposition, and we cannot be discouraged. Let me leave you with just a few scriptures. There are literally hundreds in God's Word. But if you are choosing to serve today, I want you to know you'll probably meet opposition. So I want you to let these words ring in your ears a little bit this morning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. The God of heaven will make us prosper. I have, not, uh, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not dismay. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I am the Lord, God Almighty. I will deliver. I will redeem. I am the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this group of people gathered here today in your house. I thank you, Lord, that so many already serve you. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we would see anew that when we meet opposition, it's not opposition against us, but it's opposition against you. And you are big enough to handle anything that this world's going to throw at us. Lord, if there are some here this morning that have just said some things in life that I try to do for God seem too hard, that they would be encouraged this morning to say, nothing is too hard because God is on my side. I pray, Lord, this morning that we would see how you can work in our lives. And that then, Lord, we would be prepared to give you glory and honor for the way that you take up for us and the way, Lord, that you answer our prayers. Lord, if there are some here this morning that are feeling discouraged in their walk with you, may they become men and women of prayer today, Lord. May we get on our knees and pray for each other. May we go to those people in our live groups or to others and and say, pray with me, pray for me, so that I may truly serve God well. Lord, make us men and women of prayer, men and women of action, and men and women who choose to serve you, Lord, and to do it gladly, knowing that you control the outcome and that you, Lord, are in control. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.